We appreciate the presence of everyone. We're glad that you're here. We hope you can come back and be with us again, particularly if you're visiting with us. We hope that you can come back and that you've got your Bible with you tonight. I want to begin with this principle that it's altogether possible that we could affirm a Bible principle and yet turn around and deny the very principle that we affirm. I want to get that concept before us and then we're going to build on that. That it's altogether possible that I could affirm a principle. This is a Bible principle. I agree the Bible teaches this and I'm in agreement with it. That is Bible principle. And then turn right around and say something that is diametrically opposed to that. And deny the very principle I just affirmed. I want us to talk tonight about a principle we all would agree on. There wouldn't be a person present that would deny this and say, I don't believe this at all. And that is that God is a just God. Is he a just God? Would there be anybody even among brethren generally, who would say God is not a just God. Now, maybe a wayward Christian who no longer has faith in God might say that, but among those that we consider to be faithful, none would say our God is not a just God. And so I raise the question, is he a just God? We're going to pursue that question. But I'm also interested, and perhaps more so in this question, are we saying in the things we say, that God is unjust. Could I, on the one hand, affirm God is a just God and then turn around and say something that says, in essence, God is unjust and God is unfair? That's possible. And we're going to see some examples of that as we go further. We're going to look at three things tonight, and let's begin with this. Let's start with the fact that God is a just God. And while all agree on that, that's the foundation on which we're building our study tonight. And so I want to spend some time establishing something we all already agree upon, that God is a just God. We'll partially define that as we go forward in this section, but in the next section we're going to talk about what that means then. So God is a just God. Let's establish that from the Old Testament and then from the New. Now we're going to do what we often do in compounding evidence and look at one reference would suffice, but I want to see several references that repeatedly make the point God indeed is a just God. So let's go in our Bibles to Deuteronomy chapter 10. Deuteronomy 10 and verse 17. Some of the passages we'll need to look at the context. Others, the verse itself will make the point we're wanting to see. And we start with this one that says, For the Lord your God is the God of gods, the Lord of lords, is the great God, mighty and awesome, who shows no partiality nor takes a bribe. Now man may take a bribe, and when a man, like a judge, would take a bribe, he is unjust, he is unfair. But God doesn't take bribes. But I'm more interested in this phrase that says that he shows no partiality. That if God approves of something in this person's life, then this one over here does the same thing, but he doesn't approve of that. Or condemns something in this person's life, but the same thing in someone else's life he doesn't condemn, God is unfair. So God does not show partiality. Let's go to another in the book of Deuteronomy. This time let's go to Deuteronomy 32 and look at verse 4. Deuteronomy 32 and verse 4, he is the rock, his work is perfect, 
for all his ways are justice, a God of truth and without injustice, righteousness and upright is he. Let's start at the end of the verse and work our way back up. God is a God that is righteous and upright. He is a God of truth where there is no injustice. But let's look at this phrase, for all his ways are justice. Not some of his ways or most of his ways, but all of his ways are justice. Interesting that that's the same word. Let's jump over to Genesis, the 18th chapter, if you will, in verse 25. Genesis 18 in verse 25 Question was raised, shall, shall, the judge, shall not the judge of all the earth do right? The same word translated justice is translated right. The, the, shall, the judge of the, shall not the judge of the earth do right? In other words, the judge of the earth is going to do what's fair and what is right. That's the same word for justice here. God is a fair God. He is a just God. Well, let's go again. Let's go this time to the book of Job. We're going to spend a little time just tracing through biblical concepts here for a little bit. Job 34, beginning at verse 9. Job 34 and verse 9. Through verse 12, for he has said, now this is uh, Elihu's uh, proclamation that he's giving. And the friends of Job, while they didn't have everything com completely right in their application to Job, much of what they said was good Bible doctrine. We've seen that multiple times as we've studied through the book. But I want you to notice in Genesis 34, or not Genesis, but Job 34, beginning at verse, verse 9, the text says, For he has said, It profits man nothing that he should delight in God. Therefore, listen to me, you men of understanding, for it be it from God to do wickedness. In other words, our God would not do wickedness. And from the Almighty to commit iniquity, for he repays man according to his work, and he makes man to find a reward according to his ways. Surely God will never do wickedly, nor will the Almighty pervert justice. God the Almighty would never pervert justice. In other words, God is a just God. Drop down to verse 17. Same word for justice is translated justice here. Should uh, one who hates justice govern? If God was a God who was not just and he hated justice and fairness, should he be the one in control and govern? And the answer to that is no. Not at all should that be the case. Well, Job had made the charge, according to Elihu, that is, that he said at verse 5, that I am righteous and God has taken away my justice. Should I lie concerning my right? The word right there is the same word translated justice and all those other references here in this context. Well, let's go again. Let's go this time to the book of Psalms. Let's go to the 11th Psalm and in verse 7. Psalm 11 and verse 7. For the Lord is righteous. He loves righteousness. His countenance beholds the upright. God is righteous and he loves righteousness. Now, by the way, that's the same word used over in Psalm uh, 7 and in verse 11. Let's just reverse those, flip those numbers. 7 in verse 11, it's the same word for just. So when God is righteous, he's a just God. He's fair. He's equitable. He indeed is a just God. Let's go to Psalm 25. Psalm 25, beginning at verse 8. 
Let's try to get before us. God indeed is a just God. We already believe that. But hopefully this deepens our appreciation for the fact that God is fair and he's just. Whatever that means, I have to accept. Let's go to Psalm 25 beginning at verse 8. Good and upright is the Lord. Therefore he teaches sinners in, in the way. The humble he guides in justice. And the humble he teaches his way. All the paths of the Lord are mercy and truth. To such as keep his commandments and his testimonies. And so I hear, I see in this context, God is upright and he's a God of uprightness and justice. Let's go again in the book of Psalms. This time let's go to the 89th Psalm and in verse 14. Psalm 89 and in verse 14. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Mercy and truth go before your face. And so the very foundation upon which his throne is established is the principle of righteousness and justice. Well, let's go to another one. Let's go to two more in the Old Testament before going to the New. Let's go to Isaiah. Uh, see what the prophets have to say about this principle. Isaiah 24 and in verse 16. Isaiah 24 and verse 16. The text says, For the ends of the earth, from the ends of the earth, we have heard the songs, Glory to the Righteous. Now, speaking of God, the Father is called the righteous. That same word translated righteous is the same word translated just, that Noah was a just man. And so God is a righteous God. He indeed is a just God. Now, one more in the Old Testament. This time, let's go to Isaiah 61. And in verse 8, for I, the Lord, love justice. And so we've seen from the Old Testament, the Old Testament God, which is the same as the New Testament God, but in Old Testament times, God was viewed as a God of justice. He's a fair God. More about what that means in a moment. Let's shift gears and go to the New Testament now and see some references that may not use the word justice. It will in, in at least one occasion. But look at Luke 18 and in verse 7. This is the word of Jesus in Luke 18 and in verse 7, and shall, God, uh, and shall God not avenge his own elect? Well, you may say, I'm not sure what avenge means here because I don't use that word every day. The English standard says he gives justice. So God is a God who gives justice. He is a just God. Well, let's notice another reference. Let's go to Acts 10 and in verse 34. Peter, in preaching to the household of Cornelius, said, God is not a respecter of persons. He shows no partiality, depending on your translation of that. He doesn't show partiality. He's no respecter of persons. He doesn't do something for the Jew that he's not also willing to do for the Gentile. God does not show partiality. That same principle is repeated in Romans 2 and verse 11. There's no partiality with God. That was in the context where the Gentiles obviously are going to face judgment and punishment for their sin. But the Jews are doing the same thing. Is God going to just overlook that? Well, if God did, then there's partiality with God. And the point in Romans 2 is there is no partiality with God if the Jews are doing the same thing to face the same judgment. That's part of the judgment, or part of the, the justice of God. Colossians 3.25 is a third text. It uses that same phrase, there's no partiality with God. God shows no partiality at all. Now, one more in the Old Testament before we begin to make some application of that. Let's go to the book of Hebrews, chapter 6, and notice in verse 10. Hebrews 6 and in verse 10. For God is not unjust to forget your work and labor of love. 
In other words, if God forgot about what you did, then that is unjust. So God is not unjust to forget your work and labor of love. So the God of the New Testament is pictured with the same picture we saw of him in the Old Testament. God indeed is a just God. So here's the conclusion we have to draw from what we've seen, and you already know this. That our God is a just and fair and right God in his dealings with man. So whatever he does with man in his dealings with man, whatever he says to man, whatever reaction he gives to man, whatever he does in the future, what he's done in the past is fair and just and right because he's a just God. Now we haven't learned anything we didn't already know. But we've established a principle and a foundation that we all affirm our God is a just God. Now let's raise a question. What does God's justice mean? What does it mean to me? And so this is not just an exercise and here's some Bible principle. We, okay, I see it and I know it and let's all go home and now we all know God is a just God. I already knew that. What does it mean to me? Well, let's list some things and make some application of that. It means that he means what he says. If God is a just God, then God means what he said. That means we can put our trust in his word. He's a right God, a fair God. So whatever he says, I can put my trust in that. If he gives a command or a warning and he doesn't mean it, then he's unjust. In other words, if God gives a command, but you really don't have to do that, but I gave it as a command though. Here is a command, I command you to do thus and so, but you really don't have to do that, then that's not fair. That's not just. If he gives a warning saying, if you do this, this punishment comes, but you do that and that punishment doesn't come, that's unjust. It means he means what he says. Here's something else it means. It means he does what he promises. We're just making application of all those texts in the Old and New Testament that God is a just God. He loves justice. It means he does what he promises. That if he promises a reward for obedience, and then he doesn't do that, he's unjust. Let's take, for example, he's the author of eternal salvation and all of them that obey him. What about those who obey him, but he doesn't give them eternal salvation? That's unjust. Because he made a promise he doesn't fulfill. And what about the promise that if you repent and be baptized, you receive the remission of sins? What if I repent and I'm baptized, but God doesn't give me the remission of sins? That's unjust. He's made a promise as a reward, of a, a reward for obedience, but then he doesn't give that. And I want to suggest, listen to this carefully, the same thing would be true concerning any warning he gives. A warning that says, if you commit this sin, here is the punishment, but I commit that sin, but there's not going to be that punishment. Even though I did what he told me I couldn't do, that is unjust. The question is, if not, why not? What does it mean that God is a just God? It means that God is fair. It means that God is fair. If God is not completely fair and completely just and completely right, or maybe he lacks the slightest fairness, he's not fit to be our God. Now think about that for a moment. If God is not completely fair, or he's not completely just, or he's not completely right, or he's lacking just a little bit in fairness, then he's not what the Bible claims him to be because the Bible says he's fair and he's just and he's right. That's the principle on which we're starting. God's fairness suggests that he gives laws. 
He gives man free will to choose to obey or disobey that law, and he shows man options and consequences. Let's give an example of that. Let's take in Genesis chapter 2. We'll come to that a little bit later. God said, do not eat of this particular fruit. You can eat of all the rest, but of this fruit you cannot eat. He gives man free will. In other words, he didn't make man a robot. I'm not going to allow you, even if you try to eat that fruit, you can go eat it if you want to, but I told you not to eat it. And the warning is that if you eat of it, you'll surely die. Here are the consequences. Here are the consequences if you do that. That's fairness. He gives rules. He gives man free will. Man's not a robot. And then God shows him the consequences of his actions. Before he ever has that action in his life. God's justice and fairness also means that he shows love and mercy and grace. While at the same time he gives us a warning, he also shows us how to obtain the remission of our sins. And maintain purity before him. That's part of his grace and part of his mercy and part of his love. What does God's justice mean? It means he means what he says. He does what he promises. It means that he's fair. It also means he executes his judgment. In other words, any warning of judgment says he's going to do that. In the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. What did that say? I'm going to execute my judgment. All liars will have their lake, a part in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone says he will execute judgment. So any passage that talks about the fairness of God, the justice of God says he's going to execute judgment because he gave a warning. If he doesn't execute that warning or follow through on that warning, then he's not fair and he's not just. Let me give you some examples of God doing this very thing. Let's go back to Genesis chapter 2. Genesis 2, 17, God said, in the day that you eat of this fruit, you will surely die. You're going to die if you eat of this fruit. Well, let's go to Genesis chapter 3 now. And start at verse 1, we're not going to read that, but if you peruse through Genesis chapter 3, beginning at verse 1, you see that they ate of the fruit that did the very thing, verse 1 through 6, that God had told them not to do. God gave a law, gave a warning, showed the consequence if you violate the law, and they violated the law. Now let's drop down to verse 16. God followed through on what he said. He executed his judgment. And notice what he said, beginning at verse 16. To the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply your sorrow in, in conception. In pain, you'll bring forth children. Your desire shall be to your husband, and he shall rule over you. That became as a consequence of sin. And to Adam, he said, because you've heeded the voice of your wife, and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, saying, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground for your sake. In toil, you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles shall, uh, shall bring forth for you, and it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat of the herbs of the field. In the sweat of your face you will eat bread, till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you shall return. God's executing his judgment of exactly what he said would take place. That's fairness, that's justice. I'll give you another example. Let's go to Genesis chapter 4. I'm just trying to demonstrate and illustrate that God gives a warning, says, don't do this, or I want you to do this. And the warning is that if you violate my law, there is judgment to come. That's fairness for God to execute that judgment. If God doesn't execute the judgment, he's not just and he's not fair. So let's go to Genesis chapter 3. Here's the case of Cain and Abel. They both brought of the, the sacrifice that they offered before God. 
And I want you to notice that the text says that God respected Abel and his offering, verse 4, but verse 5 said he did not respect Cain and his offering. The Hebrews 11.4 said the difference was that by faith Abel offered unto God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain. In other words, one offered it according to the direction of God, and the other, the, uh, Cain, did not offer a sacrifice according to the direction of God. And God accepted one, and God rejected the other. And so God followed through on his judgment. Nadab and Abihu, they offered a profane fire before the Lord, an unauthorized fire before the Lord, and a fire came out and, and consumed them. You say, man, that's, that's, that's awful for them to die. And yet that was the warning of God. They did something unauthorized that had not, God had not told them to do. And God executed his judgment. Let me give you another example. Let's go to Numbers chapter 20 and in verse 12. You remember that great leader Moses that he had, uh, was told to speak to the rock. He violated the law of God and he smote the rock. That is not what God told him to do. And God said, because you did not believe me to hallow me in the eyes of the children of Israel, therefore you shall not bring this assembly into the land which I have given them. I'm going to punish you. Why are you punishing me? Because you didn't do what I told you to do. That's justice and fairness of God executing his judgment. Listen to this carefully. God cannot overlook our rejection of his authority or he would not be perfectly just. In other words, God says, here's my authority. I want you to follow this authority. This is what I've told you to do. And I reject the authority of God. For God to overlook that means he's not completely just. So what does it mean? It means that he means what he says. He does what he promises. It means he's fair and he executes his judgment. Now let's raise this question that we raised at the very beginning. How do we deny God's justice? If this were a Bible class and I asked for a show of hands, how many here believe God is unjust? I don't think I'd ever see a hand go up. Is anyone willing to stand up and affirm God is unjust? I don't think anybody would stand up and say, I'll do that. I, I would like to take the proposition and, and defend God is an unjust God. And yet I may be saying that God is unjust. You may be saying God is unjust. Let's begin answering that question by looking at reasons we deny God's justice. Why do we do that? We sometimes judge according to our own changing standards. In other words, I view everything through my, filter it through my way of thinking. That's usually the problem with man, isn't it? Go back to Genesis 3 for a moment. Do you remember in the case of Adam and Eve? She began to reason that maybe it's okay to eat this fruit because the serpent had said, God knows in the day that you eat of it, you will not surely die. And you'll have knowledge, no good and evil, etc. And so she begins to reason her way through that through human thinking. And so why do we sometimes deny the justice of God? We judge according to our own changing standards. And so I'm judging as I view things. Jeremiah made the point in chapter 17, verse 9, the heart can be deceitful. You see, my mind can deceive me, it can mislead me. And God's ways are higher than our ways. God has a way, higher way of looking at things and thinking on things than I do. I may look at something and say, I think it would be all right if they did this and so, or maybe if they did not follow this command, but that's not God's way of thinking. I'm thinking by my standard that's changing versus God. Here's another reason, a second reason. 
We think God deals with people as man deals with people. We think God deals with man as man deals with man. Man can easily become partial. And so we think maybe God could be partial. Man can easily overlook a promise. And maybe we think God overlooks a promise. God, man could overlook a warning. And maybe God would overlook a warning. Maybe as man looks at things, maybe we, we get by and we squeak by. The parents didn't see what I did and so I got off scot-free. But we forget God knows everything and sees all things. Or maybe the police didn't catch me violating the law so man doesn't always see everything. Maybe God didn't see everything, but God sees everything. We notice in Numbers chapter 23 and verse 19, God is not a man. God doesn't function as man. He doesn't think as man. Here's the third reason. We confuse justice with our own sense of fairness. All three of these talk about our own human reasoning. Each one has a little different connotation. But we confuse justice with our own sense of fairness. I look for myself and I think this would seem to be fair to me. And since that seems fair, then that must be fair. And that may not fit with the fairness of God. It makes our thinking the standard. It is not in man that walketh to direct his own footsteps. Now let's spend almost the rest of our time talking about some examples of our denial. How could I deny the justice of God? Here's one. Here's a simple one. Let's talk about what God says, and we would all say we agree with that. Baptism is essential. Let's establish that. Mark 16, 16, Jesus said, He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. He that believeth not shall be downed. Every person present agrees with that. In fact, if I stood before you tonight, teaching baptism is not essential, we would have an uproar before the service was over. Because people would say, no, this is error. We can't, we can't stand for that. We, we can't have that kind of doctrine taught in this pulpit. Baptism is essential, Mark 16, 16. In fact, the Bible says that God only saves those who are obedient. Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. The Bible goes on to say that those who don't obey will be lost. Jesus is coming in flaming fire, taking vengeance on those that know not God and obey not the gospel. <clears throat> and so we all look at that and we all agree, say, that's right, that's, that's the truth. You keep preaching that, brother, that's exactly the way that is. And yet, and yet, we may know some people who have not been baptized and we speak of them as having hope. Maybe it's someone in your family. That it's never obeyed the gospel, but we speak of them as if they have hope. Now we hold to this principle, baptism is essential. We believe that, but we may know of someone who's not been baptized and we speak as if they have hope. We may call them Christian people. I hear Christians sometimes talk about people in denominational world saying, you know, they're good Christian people. Are they? Are we saying they didn't have to be baptized for their mission of sins to be a Christian? Or someone who hasn't been baptized, and we know they haven't been baptized into Christ, they were to pass away, we may put on a Facebook post, may they rest in peace. Really? You think they're going to rest in peace? You believe the principle, but you say they weren't baptized, but they're going to rest in peace anyway. We're denying the justice of God. We're saying our God is not just, is what we're saying. Or someone passes away, maybe it's a loved one we have, and we know they didn't obey the gospel, and maybe it's the emotion at the time, but we say, oh, they're in a better place now. 
They were suffering before they died, but they're in a better place now. And I'm so glad that death finally came because they're in a better place now. They were never baptized, but they're in a better place now. You know what you're saying? You're saying this principle up here is either not true or it's true and God's not going to stick to his word, which means God is unjust. God's unjust. Now you understand we sometimes hold to a principle and then we turn around and deny the principle. Let's take another one. God says we must have authority for all that we do in religion. God said we must have authority. Colossians 3.17 Whatever you do in word or in deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we preach that principle and we all agree to that principle. If I stood before you tonight saying, you know what, we don't have to have authority in religion. As a church, we can take money out of the treasury and do whatever we want. We don't have to have book, chapter, and verse. In, in worship, we can do what we want. We don't have to have book, chapter, and verse for our acts of worship. We would have an uproar before the service was through. We all agree with this principle. In fact, if we don't have authority, if we don't have Bible authority, we do not have fellowship with God. Let's go to 2 John 9 and get this principle before us. In the book of 2 John and in verse 9, whoever transgresses, or one translation says, goes onward and does not abide in the doctrine of Christ, he does not have God. But he who abides in the doctrine of Christ has both the Father and the Son. And so to practice something unscriptural means an act without authority means I do not have fellowship with God. That's serious business. In fact, God punished those who acted without authority. Remember that? Nadab and Abihu, they offered a strange, unauthorized fire before God and God consumed them. I cite Genesis 3. The reason that Cain's sacrifice was not acceptable, it was not authorized before God. It was not according to faith. Now we preach that and people will tell us, Tell the elders, tell me, and say, you know what, that's the truth. You preach it, brother, that's exactly the way it needs to be. I've got friends who need to hear that. I wish I could have that material. I'd like to take that. I'd like to show them this video. I want them to hear this principle. We believe the principle of authority. But we talk about those in churches of Christ who practice that which is unscriptural, and we act as if they're okay as they are. We talk about those who are in churches of Christ that have practiced things contrary. Maybe they have the church kitchens. Maybe they have the ball teams. Maybe they support human organizations. Do various and sundry things that are unscriptural and we speak as if they're okay as they are. We refer to those in those churches as good strong Christians. Now, either we don't believe that principle or we believe that principle and don't believe God's going to stick to his word. I want to tell you, if God doesn't stick to his word, God is unjust. If God says you have to have authority, but it's okay if you don't, God's unjust. And we're saying God's unjust. If we're saying you must have Bible authority for all we do, but if you have instrumental music, I'll still approve of you and I think you're okay to do that. We're saying our God is unjust and demanding authority. He was unjust in condemning these when he don't condemn us. Is God unjust? Do we say God is unjust? We often refer to those who practice such things as if they are faithful brethren with whom we have fellowship and should have fellowship. And we've forgotten the principle of Bible authority. Here's another. The Bible says there is only one church. 
Ephesians 4 and verse 4, there is one body. In fact, Jesus himself said this, every plant that my father has not planted shall be rooted up. That's a Bible principle we all agree with. In fact, we also agree that many religious people will be lost. Many will say to me in that day, have we not prophesied in thy name and thy name done many wonderful works? And I'll profess unto them that you're, works of, you're doing works of lawlessness, acting without authority. Now that's pure Bible doctrine. And we agree with that. If I taught the very opposite, we'd have an uproar. We all agree with that principle, and yet, and yet, we talk about those in other denominations as if the church of our Lord is just the denomination. I want to tell you, when you use that language, you're using the language of Ashdod. That's not biblical language. We talk about those in other denominations. That implies we are part of a denomination. We are denominations, what that implies. We talk about Christians in the denominational world. We speak of our family in denominationalism as if they have hope. Again, when they pass, they are in a far better place. May they rest in peace. While they were in a denomination, contrary to the will of God. Now, if God says there's one body, and every plant that's planted will, not planted will be rooted up, and yet he approves of these, then God is unjust. God is unjust. Are we denying that God is just. Let's take one more. God says there's one cause for divorce, Matthew 19 and in verse 9. Except it be for fornication, Matthew 19, 9, Matthew 5, 32 would be another verse. There is no other cause given in that text or any other text. Not a single one given. The only one mentioned in all the New Testament is for the cause of fornication. To approve of another, for someone to say, you know what, it's okay, I think, to get a divorce for some other cause, means we're speaking where God has not spoken, and I must speak where the Bible speaks, and be silent where the Bible is silent. 1 Peter 4.11, if any man speak, let him speak as the oracles of God. And yet, and yet, I want to back up to say, that's pure Bible doctrine. If I taught the opposite, again, we'd have an uproar, and yet... There are those who divorce for causes other than fornication, and we embrace them as if they're okay. Nothing wrong with their divorce. We speak of those who obtain unscriptural divorces as good, strong Christians. And what we're saying, God, when you gave only one cause and said there's only one cause, you never gave any other, I know you also approve of others too. Even though you never gave us your word on that, that's unfair. God then is unjust. Are we saying God is unjust? One final question. I want you to ponder this one for a moment. Why do we oppose anything unscriptural and teach against it? If those who practice the unscriptural are okay as they are, why not approve or even join with them? So if instrumental music, if we preach against it, but then someone who practices it is okay, why do we oppose it? Why preach against it? Why not leave it alone? It's okay to do it. If being in churches of Christ that practice institutionalism, for lack of better expression, practice the liberal progressive things that are going on, 
If that's okay, why do we preach against it and oppose that? And why do we try to tell people they need to come out of that when we tell them, turn around and tell them it's okay? Nothing wrong with that at all. Why do we oppose anything that we think is unscriptural and then turn around and give our endorsement to it? Is God a just God? Well, we know the Bible says he's just and we would all affirm he is a just God. But are we saying he's unjust? We've established God as a just God. We know what it means. And sometimes in our statements, we betray the very principles we say we believe. And we may be affirming to our friends and our neighbors and our family, our God is unjust. When we don't mean to give that impression. Is God a just God? And the answer is he is a just God. And we need to put our thoughts and our speech in harmony with the principle that God is a just God. There may be one or more present who's not a Christian, who's not a child of God. Would you come this evening believing that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God? Would you repent of your sins, acknowledge your faith in Christ, and be buried in the waters of baptism for the remission of sins? If you're subject in any way, would you come while together we stand, while we sing?